Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. Our guest today on The Resilient Surgeon is Dr. Gloria Mark, Professor of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine, and the topic is our attention, in particular, our attention span. I vividly remember being on rounds in 1983 as an intern at the University of Minnesota with Dr. Mike Eisenberg, who was a cancer surgeon. And as we stood gathered around the professor, he told us why he became an academic surgeon, because he liked to do three to four big cases a week and the rest of the time sit in his office and think and write papers. Well, for those of you not familiar with what our world looked like back then, well, there was no email, internet, or electronic chart. To get journal articles, you had to physically go to the library, sit down, page through volume after volume of books with lists of all the publications by year, then go to the stacks, get the journal out, and make copies of the article in the library. Notes in the chart were simple and generally consisted of some variation of doing well, no problems. Rarely were they longer than a paragraph. So there was indeed white space or time to think, as Dr. Mike Eisenberg said. As Mike Eisenberg said. Fast forward to today. Now we can retrieve articles in an instant, which is a great thing, but we are also flooded with information. We can access any article anywhere, anytime, on anything. Emails like a rucksack loaded with 50 pounds, and we are tempted relentlessly by the dopamine generation machines located in our pockets and by our beds. Like all things, they're good until they're not. The end result? Distraction. But not just the distraction that everyone talks about in our daily discourse, but in my opinion, distraction from what is most important and meaningful to each of us in our lives, our core projects of living, be it as a surgeon, a spouse, or a parent. Our guest today is the author of Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness, and productivity. Gloria received her PhD in psychology from Columbia University, and she has devoted her career to the study of our relationship with the digital world and its impact on our lives. What sets Gloria's remarkable work apart is that her studies are done in the field where people work, and she uses heart rate variability devices to track stress levels, combined with software that can track interruptions and task switching on the computer. Her work provides an incredibly rich portrait of what is happening to all of us as a result of the digital age that is upon us. Most importantly, though, Gloria's focus, most importantly, though, Gloria focuses on not just finding out what is problematic or bad about our digital lives, as her interest is in preserving the great aspects of the digital world while helping us be intentional about how to maintain a better relationship with it while preserving our energy and focus for what matters most to each of us in our lives. And now I bring you Gloria Mark. Gloria, welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, it's a real honor, and uh, I thought we'd start out the uh, discussion kind of framing up uh, what used to be and where we are now, all right? And you kind of lump that under the label of our the, the profound social, technological, and environmental influences that we all live under, right? But I thought I could tell a little personal story, and then I'd love to hear your story about your transition from Germany to the United States in your career. And, and then that will frame up the, the, the very significant impact of what I just mentioned, the social, te technological, and environmental influences. And I remember when I was a resident in general surgery, the year was around 1983. And keep in mind, now this is just for everybody that doesn't remember, no email, all right? No iPhones, nothing, 
All right. It was just, you know, we used to write notes in the patient's chart by hand. Uh, you made phone calls. You went down the, you know, the hall to have a meeting. And I remember talking, I was an intern at the time, and, and one of the faculty members, Mike Eisenberg, I was asking about an academic career. And he said, yeah, what I love about an academic career is, you know, I, I do three to four big cases a week. And uh, and then I spend the rest of my time in my office writing papers and thinking. And I and I thought that was really that was really a big deal at the time. And I thought that's the career I want. All right. So that was I still remember the moment when he said all that. And you fast forward, you know, now what is that, uh, you know, 25, nearly 45 years, something like that. And, you know, physicians, surgeons, everybody's running around with their iPhones. Uh, you know, they're in their office on their computers, email. You know, we've just become overwhelmed with the social, technological, and environmental influences that you highlight. And life has changed dramatically in that time period. And, and you had a very similar experience in your career. And I'd love to hear how that unfolded for you and how, how you, and, and then also tell us how your attention to attention came to be. Yes. <laughs> so, so um, back in the year 2000, um, up until 2000, my husband and my two daughters, our two daughters and myself were living in Germany and we decided to move back to the U.S. Now, in Germany, I was working at a very large research institute. It was called the GMD. And at the time, it was, uh, you know, one of the largest, if not the largest, research institute in Germany that focused on information technology. It's now called Fraunhofer Institute. And so our lunchtime practice in Germany was very interesting because around noon, one of the colleagues would walk around and gather up people, whoever wants to go to lunch. And as a group, we would go to lunch and we would have the main meal of the day, which in Germany is called Mittagessen, which means, you know, middle of the day meal. It was usually a warm meal. And, uh, you know, we spent time, you know, talking about tech, gossiping, you know, and mm -hmm. after the meal, we would take what's called a round. This is the, the English translation. And we would walk around the campus for about 20 minutes. And it was a very nice campus. Then we'd come back to work. We were pretty refreshed. So then in 2000, I moved to the U.S., begin a job as an assistant professor. So it's a it's a different job. It's a different country. It's a different culture in terms of tech. And now all of a sudden I'm encountering a lot more projects to work on. In Germany, I had the luxury of just really focusing on one or a few projects. Now as an assistant professor, got many more projects. I have to write grants. I have to mentor students, teach classes, serve on committees. So I was really starting to multitask, shift my attention like crazy. Now my lunchtime practice changed dramatically. And now I would run between classes, get a takeout sandwich, race back to my office. And I would walk down the hall and the doorways of all my colleagues, their doors were open and I would glance and see them sitting in front of their computers, eating their sandwiches. And then I'd slide into my chair open up my computer and do exactly the same thing. So no more sitting with colleagues, eating a nice warm lunch, <laughs> grabbing a sandwich, uh, rushing. You know, that's the key. You're rushing like rushing. mad. Yeah. And uh, and then no, no 20 minute walk afterwards. Yeah. So yeah. everything changed. Everything um, changed. So what I noticed when I came to the U.S., was that, you know, on the one hand, my attention was just glued to my computer screen. And this is before smartphones. At, at the same time, I also noticed that it was very hard for me to keep my attention on any one thing. You know, there were multiple tasks, multiple things to do, managing email. And so it was very hard for me to have extended focus on any one thing. 
So I began to talk to people and ask if other people were experiencing the same thing. And people started saying, yeah. And so I realized since I could study this empirically, that's exactly what I was going to do. And I began to study people's experiences working with their devices in terms of their attention, their stress, their mood and behavior. And so that's what started me on this um, research path. And then at the time uh, when you came to UC, it was UC Irvine originally, right? That's where you yes. started. What was your uh, research focus at that time? Was it on attention or how, how did it how did that come to evolve? So you you came there with that intention? No, I actually was studying distributed teamwork. So uh -huh. I, I was looking at how teams use technology to interact. I was looking at successes, failures, you know, how different kinds of tech affected the group dynamics. So it was a very different kind yeah. of the area. But your observations and experience, especially contrasted with Germany, that was the trigger that got you going on this? That was that was the trigger. Um, yeah. But I, I will mention that in my graduate training, I was trained in psychology. Right. So I learned about information processing. I learned about attention. So I had had the training in all of this. So it wasn't completely new. Uh, the part that was new was deciding to make this a research I see. focus. I see, yeah. And I, I think for the, the whole conversation and what I've sensed, and you tell me if I'm not getting this right, is we're trying to find some middle ground between the German experience and the UC Irvine experience. Instead of it being a binary, oh, wouldn't it be great to have the old days? How can we mesh these two in some way that is meaningful for us and to make us help us live better? I think that's right. Um, the the ship has sailed. We live in yeah. a technological world. We can't go back. We shouldn't go back. Mm -hmm. There there are too many benefits that mm -hmm. technology has brought us. For example, in in the medical field, you know, all of my interactions with my physician, accessing medical records, all of this is done through tech, yeah. Yeah. right? And I would not want to go back to having to do this over the phone or having to pay an in-person visit mm -hmm. to be able to learn about results or, you know, get get quick answers to things. Yeah. So it's most definitely tech has, you know, yeah. moved our society forward. Yeah. Well, you know, the the thing that's so striking about your work and other people are doing it too, but you really, you really took this to the next level, in my opinion. And that is your the way you approach the problem. Um, it's not just bringing people in the lab and putting them in front of a computer and testing them and creating kind of artificial circumstances to replicate the real world. You went out in the wild and what you call living labs to study this. And I, I'd love for you to describe that and how it worked and the various parameters that you measured to look at and, and gain knowledge around this. Yeah, so, you know, I was trained in my graduate work in psychology and I did laboratory experiments. That's what most mm -hmm. psychologists do. And when you design a laboratory experiment, you're designing an abstract model of the world. So you're you're doing it so you can control a lot of different variables and just look at one particular variable and see how right. it changes when, when you do some kind of intervention. So I realized when we studied tech that it's really hard to model all the experiences that people have in the real world outside of the laboratory, because when people use tech in the real world, they're under a lot of stress. They have a lot of different projects to work on, like I did when I first came to UCI. Yeah. And uh, you have um, pressures, a lot of internal pressures. There's career trajectories. You might have conflicts with your colleagues, you might have great experiences with your colleagues. There's so many things going on that just can't be modeled in a laboratory. 
So that's why I thought I need to go to where people are to study what people are are actually doing. So how do you do that? Yeah. Well, the you know, the way to do that is to use sensors. So to use measurement techniques that can capture aspects of people as they're moving around the world, um, they have to be unobtrusive. They they shouldn't interfere with you know people's work because you want to capture the natural experience. Mm-hmm. So you know when I first started doing this, first started doing it in two thousand three, we actually would shadow people with stopwatches because we had no other means <laughs> to mm-hmm. study it, and we would um, you know graduate students and myself we would follow people around. We'd use a stopwatch. Every single time people switched activities, we'd note the time and write it down. Um, It was not a perfect measure, but it was pretty close. And even Mm -hmm. if we erred for a few seconds either way, I think it was a good approximation for how long people's attention was on a screen. And at that time, we found it to be two and a half minutes on average. So let's just let's just drill in on that a second. Two and a half minutes on average, switching before they switch to another, another screen, another tab or something on the computer or, or something like that. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So look, you know what it is they're looking at on the screen. Now you know then came along innovations, and we could use computer logging software, which can uh, log in the background how often any screen is in the foreground. And we make the assumption that if the screen is in in the foreground, that's what people are paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a a pretty good, it's a reasonable assumption that that's the case because if you're switching screens, you're no longer looking at that other screen that was in the foreground. So so that's how we um, began to measure. Then we, we used other devices. So... You know, at first we used heart rate monitors, which are straps that people wear on the chest. <laughs> you you know, as a cardiothoracic surgeon, that the closer a device is to the heart, the more accurate of a reading you get. So, you know, we had people wear these uh, during the day and we measured heart rate variability which is the the variability of heartbeats, which is a marker of stress. It's associated mm-hmm. with stress. Mm-hmm. Um, we we had tried other things. We had tried um, looking at level of uh, cortisol, and that but that's you have to be so precise. And mm-hmm. people wake up at different times, and some people would brush their teeth. Do you, you talk about salivary cortisol primarily? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's not an accurate measure of mm-hmm. stress. And plus, you just get a one-time measure, say, in the right. morning and right. at night. So so we were using heart rate variability uh, via heart rate monitors. We, we later, um, because wearable devices became much more precise, we later switched to wearable devices and... In one study that we did in 2019, we measured 750 people across the U.S. for a year, and were able to get their HRV through through their um, wearable mm-hmm. devices. Mm-hmm. We've we've used other things. We used what's called a sense cam, which is a small camera, lightweight. People wear around their necks. It takes continual photos, and then we would use. Um, facial uh facial imaging software it it does not reckon, recognize a particular face just recognizes whether a face is present or not in the image so we can get you know a, a reasonable approximation of when people were having face to face conversations uh we also did what's called experience sampling which are probes that people get um, which allows people to give their subjective experience so they can report uh, subjectively. And uh, we gave a whole battery of other measures, you know, personality measures, 
um, subjective stress measures. And basically all of this data is synced together in time. So we, you know, the heart rate variability with what's going on, the computer monitors, you can even look at things like email duration. So all, all of this data was synced together and then we could examine. Absolutely stunning. I mean, what an accomplishment to pull that off around the United <laughs> States and so many people. I mean, that level of granularity, I mean, it's really just, again, I'm just uh, stunned by it. It's really impressive. Yeah. I, I want to mention, though, that for that <clears throat> large study, uh, for reasons of privacy, we were not able to capture what people were doing on their devices. Yeah. We could, we could only capture their stress, their um, sedentary behavior, their movement. We, yeah. we could capture a lot of other things. Yeah. But we we couldn't, you know, record what was on the, the exact and what's on the device. Yeah. Well, so that's that's the backdrop of the findings that we're going to explore here. And you you mentioned or you talk about cognitive resource theory. And I think this is kind of the foundation of this entire thing that we only have so much in our, so much uh, our brains can do for a given amount of time. I mean, it's like going to the gym, lifting yeah. weights, uh, and you, you just got a limit. And can you tell us about cognitive resource theory and its impact here? Yeah, so it's actually, um, the, the theory goes back quite, quite a while for, you know, maybe five decades or so. And it's the idea that people have a limited amount of cognitive resources. You can call it attentional resources. You might call it attentional capacity. And there's things that we do that deplete these resources. There's other things that can replenish them. What depletes the resources are when you concentrate intensively for a period of time, when you're switching your attention very rapidly that can deplete resources. Um, and we can replenish resources by getting a good night's sleep, starting out your day really refreshed. Mm -hmm. You start with a full tank. I, I like that metaphor of using a, thinking about a tank of resources. Mm -hmm. um, taking a good break, a really good solid break can help replenish resources. Like the lunch um, and the walk. Lunch and walk in Germany. Is, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. that's just a, a great break. Yeah. The the problem is that, you know, many, many people that I've spoken to just neglect to take breaks, and myself included. And I know this from experience, that I would just work straight through and just to the, you know, to exhaustion. And that's that's commonplace. Um Right. As, as we speak, I'm writing an article about procrastination uh -huh. and how, um, yeah, we, we defer the, um, you know, we, we might enjoy the present because we're not working on a hard task, but we defer those consequences to the future and then we suffer repercussions. Yeah. And that's going to get at another discussion. That is the issue of our goals in our life uh, in general and how this plays into this entire mix here it's so crucial but is this is this cognitive resource theory do you think we're beyond it being a theory anymore uh well as as you know you know with theories you you want to try to disprove them mm -hmm. and um you know there there's not really uh that the theory's not really been disproved so as long as the theory is not um you know, cut down, then, then I guess it stands. Uh, I think it's, you know, I think it's a good um, characterization of what's been going on. I mean, th there have been, I want to say maybe thousands of studies yeah. done right. looking at, um, and these are, most of them are done very short term and show that when people are concentrating or multitasking, they're, performance suffers yeah. and um and then the the theory underneath that is yeah. uh that cognitive resources are draining and there there's some physiological research as well that 
backs this up that shows, you know, they're actually the, the blood flow to the brain actually changes when, when people are working hard. So yeah, would you mind expanding on that a little bit? Uh, Cause I thought that was a fascinating bit of information in the book and, and um, the, I intuitively, it just makes so much sense as a human being. After all, you know, we get physically tired if we're raking the yard or, you know, stuff, and we can push ourselves more and more, but we do have an endpoint. And so the same has to be true in the brain. You know, that's why yeah. I wonder if it's, it's no longer a theory, it's just fact. So that when people are focusing, there's an activated region of the brain. And um, it becomes metabolically active and carbon dioxide in the blood increases. And when the carbon dioxide increases, uh, it causes blood vessels to dilate so as to remove waste in that part of the brain. And they're but, dilating within the brain, so specifically in that region, yeah. Yes, so yes. The, the temperature's going up, so to speak, and the, the blood vessels are dilating, uh, yeah. et cetera. Okay, good. And as people spend more time in sustained focus, uh, their vigilance begins to go down and the blood velocity decreases. And so what this suggests is that there the, this change in attention and performance says that the, the cognitive resources aren't being replenished mm-hmm. as as they're being uh, used up used, yeah. for the task. Yeah. Uh, on that on that line of thinking, then, you know, one can certainly, I mean, you could you could think of extremes sort of like hell week in the Navy SEALs where, you know, you for a whole week, you just push yourself to the very bitter physical end and mental end. Uh, where is that tipping point in terms of being able to train yourself to stay focused? I mean, I'm, I'm certain that you could, you could, most people could, let's say I, I have an ability to focus for 20 minutes on something, you know, intensely. I could probably like going to the gym, train that up to a certain, maybe three hours. I don't know. Uh, is there, is there any, mm-hmm. any information on, on that kind of workout uh, responsibility uh, in in this in this schema. So so people can certainly extend their length of focus. Uh, I you know I can't give a specific amount of minutes yeah. or hours for what that uh, that time length could be, but there there are things that people can do, and I mean one of the one of the main antagonists to being able to focus is that we are susceptible to distractions. In fact, I mean, there there are several things we can do. One of the most important ways to help us extend our focus is to start off a task being refreshed, having a full tank of resources. When we start to, when our resources drain, we get into this vicious cycle where as our mind starts to get exhausted, we lose the ability to filter out distractions. So there's a part of the mind that's called executive function. And uh, it's been referred to as the governor of the mind or the CEO of the mind. It's the, the the main controller. And it helps us filter out distractions. It helps us select what information we wanna process helps us make decisions. But when we get exhausted, this you know, poor executive function loses its capability to do its job. And so that's why we just you know, become open to distractions and this affects our focus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If, we, if we really take good breaks, we can be refreshed, then our executive function has the capacity to do its job. So in terms of training our minds, we can think in terms of, you know, what we can do to, you know, refresh our executive function so it stays on on track. Well, as long as we're there, what what so we're working and we're focused for an hour or two on some project, what are the things we can do to refresh that executive function? And yeah. I, I know you even advocate technology in some circumstances for that. So it's quite interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so there are things we, we can do. Um, one of the first things um, is to become more intentional about what we're doing. So there are different kinds of attention. There's what's called controlled processing. It's when you're reading a book or you're working on your computer and you're using mental effort to, to really concentrate and focus. Um, of course, we get tired, right? We, we can't do that for a, a very long time. There's also what's called automatic processing or automatic attention. And this is a kind of impulsive behavior where, you know, if we see our phone, we might instinctively grab it without thinking. Um, if you get a notification on your computer screen, you might click on it without thinking. Um, automatic, a good example of automatic attention is when you're driving and you, you're talking with the passenger. So you don't really need to put in a lot of effort if you're driving on a straight road. But as soon as a car comes and swerves in front of you, you'll hit the brakes and you stop talking to the person next to you because we can't do two kinds of controlled processing at the same time. We can't avoid the crash in front of us and talk to the person next to us. So the first thing we can do is become more intentional in our behaviors when we're using our devices. And I've learned to do that by probing myself. And this comes from a course that I took in mindfulness-based uh -huh. stress reduction that my university offered uh, during the pandemic. Uh, it was a great course. It, it really is. And it teaches you to focus your attention on the present, um, which, which helps reduce anxiety about the future, helps reduce regret about the past. You're just thinking about the present. And then I realized that the same principle could be applied when we use our devices, because so much of what is going on is automatic attention you know, being distracted to click on this notification, we are distracted from within ourselves half the time as right. well. Right. So can you, can you just elaborate on a little bit on the internal versus external distractions? Yeah. And if, we, if we go back even to the Eisenberg principle, that a surgeon that led me into academic surgery or your experience, these distractions weren't around them. And so now we are flooded with them, you know, well, we, we don't know if internal distractions were I'm not at exter external. Oh, external. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So, I mean, you know, there's been a sea change in that front. And so that yeah. automatic processing that you talk about is, it's, it, we're swimming like a fish in water now. It, it doesn't mm -hmm. know it's in water almost, you know, it, you're just yeah. inundated with it. But the internal distractions is another whole yeah. thing. So we we discovered this. Uh, this was back when we were shadowing people and observing. You know, we we tried to be kind of a fly on the wall observing people, and we noticed that quite often people might be working, say, on a word document, and for no explainable reason, they would suddenly shift and check email, or suddenly stop and pick up the phone. So there there was no external stimulus. That was causing them to do that. The shift, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there was some some urge within us, within the person. Um, I mean, studies have been done where people were interviewed and asked, "Why why do you switch?" And there's a variety of reasons. You know, people forget to do something, or you know, people, um, you know, they they just have this memory or they, they have an urge to look up information. Um, people are bored is another reason. So there's there's a lot of different reasons why people self-interrupt, but they do it quite often. And to, you know, if we want to extend our focus, we also have to think about controlling self-interruptions. You can turn off notifications. You can clear your desk and, you know, move your phone away yeah, yeah but we still have distractions our within our within <laughs> our minds yeah. yeah we have to deal with that yeah so so 
another thing we can do is to practice what's called forethought. And forethought, I I like this uh, technique very much. It's it's about imagining our future self. Uh, there have been a lot of studies done that show that when people imagine their future selves, they actually become more successful because they imagine their future self having achieved goals that you know or a goal that they set for themselves. But forethought can also be practiced in the near future. And so, you know, imagine that you have a report that's done that needs to be done, you know, Friday evening, end of the day. Well, you know, we are natural procrastinators. There are of course sure. indi yes. individual yes. differences. Some people yeah. are pretty good, some some are not so good. And um, but it is, I think it is human nature to procrastinate, especially if the task is not pleasant, if it's boring, if it's hard work. And so um, if you can imagine your future self, let's say the end of the day Friday, you know, let let's say it's Friday at the beginning of the day. You can imagine yourself Friday evening, 7 p.m., and you have a concrete visualization of where do you want to be? How do you want to feel? I, I want to be relaxing at home, mm -hmm. maybe drinking a glass of wine, maybe reading a book, or maybe I want to be going out with, with friends. That concrete visualization can be quite powerful and can be enough to help keep you on track and prevent you from going to social media or online shopping or checking news. Uh, so it's it's quite a, a very powerful technique. Another thing that we can do is to keep your goals in mind. Now, we did a study where we asked people two very simple questions at the beginning of the day. Uh, what do you want to accomplish today? So what's your task goal? And how do you want to feel today? So what's yes. your emotional goal? Yeah. And we found that simply asking these two questions at the beginning of the day really helped keep people on track. But the bad news is that the effect didn't last very long because goals are slippery. Yes. And, you know, as soon as our minds start getting tired, our goals begin to slip away. And so it's really important to keep your goals in mind, whatever it takes. If it involves writing it down on a piece of paper, um, you know, some people keep a post-it note writing their goals in, so it's in the field of view. But it's important to keep goals in mind because goals are really the best shield against distractions and they can help you know, help improve our focus. Um, we talked about breaks, the important of importance of breaks. And um, it turns out that the best possible break we can take is to go outside in nature mm -hmm. and to spend even 20 minutes in nature can help people de-stress. Uh, in a study we did, we found that 20 minutes in nature can help improve what's called divergent thinking, which is brainstorming, right? Ideation, creative thought. Now, people don't know exactly why this works. There's, you know, one theory is there's this evolutionary explanation that people feel relaxed and safe in nature. There's another theory that when we're in nature, our attention becomes diffuse. And this, you know, just kind of helps relax us and, you know, helps refresh us. Um, but it works. And and exercises and exercise and movement work as well. So taking really good breaks. And of course, you know, even breaks where you can contemplate, meditate, even doing what I call rote activity which is some kind of activity that's engaging and fun. It's easy to do. It could be anything from knitting to um, 
playing a simple game on your phone, but you, but the the caveat is don't don't get stuck in a rabbit hole. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. You can do that for a few minutes. It helps your mind relax. But you know, if you're someone who's going to get stuck doing this for an hour, then don't or set a timer. Yeah, and you talk also about framing errors and. This is a classic circumstance where you think, well, I'm just going to do it for a few minutes. And, oh, my God, I can't even imagine if I added up the minutes lost on a framing error in my little excursions to yeah. what I would call la-la land. <laughs> you know, and then 30 minutes later, you, you suddenly come out of the trance, right? Jesus Christ, I've been doing this for 30 minutes, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, humans are not very good at uh, estimating time. Yeah. or assessing how long we think we're going to do something we're we're mm -hmm. we're just not very good at that right so, right yeah I, I want to kind of rewind a little bit and ask you how did what was the genesis of your interest in the mindfulness course what, what was it to do with attention or was it more of a personal you know interest sort of thing or were they combined it 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 was to reduce stress so, you know, during the pandemic, um, I mean, universities had to do a pretty yeah. strong pivot and mm -hmm. put everything online. And this created a lot of extra work. So, you know, we not we had to, you know, change our course structure. Re-engineer everything. Yeah. We had to re-engineer everything. Um, you had to, you know, I was using six different kinds of technology to deliver a course, yeah. you know, as opposed to just walking into the classroom and right. giving the lecture. So there was a lot of stress. Students were very stressed. And so we were dealing with students who were, you know, having a lot of um, stress issues and, and problems related to stress that affected their coursework. So, you know, the university, um, offered this this course and so i wanted to take it to try and reduce stress and and i think it it's been very valuable and uh sometimes i do this at the end of the day and it helps mm -hmm. relax me and it helps mm -hmm. me sleep better yeah yeah for sure um and then you saw the value of it for attention is that an accurate statement yes. yeah yeah i mean i i made the connection because I realized, you know, to, if you think of the main idea of mindfulness, it's about focusing on the present, mm -hmm. right? It's it, the past doesn't exist, nor does the future exist, right? All we have that's real is the present. And I realized that it's the same idea can be applied when we're on our devices. Mm -hmm. And if we stay, keep our attention in the present, it can really help us focus on you know, our task. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to put, to put the word on it, I mean, it's meta awareness. Yes. Yeah. And can you tell us what meta awareness is? And I, I, I actually would, I'd like to bracket this and say that it is a superpower because I really do believe hmm. it is a superpower to develop one's meta awareness. Yeah. And, uh, I want to explore that a little bit. Yeah, uh, meta-awareness is being aware of what you know and what you don't know. And in this particular context, meta-awareness is being aware of, are, are you paying attention or are you being distracted? So it's it's having, think of it as having a grip on what your mind is doing and having a, you know, a, a better sense of, you know, am I, am I paying attention to what I need to be? So, you know, so often we can go down a rabbit hole of social media or reading the news or going shopping. And, you know, we, when we do that, when we get stuck in the rabbit hole, we're lacking meta awareness, uh -huh. but, you know, I've learned to keep probing myself. And if I probe myself, it helps keep me aware of where my attention is. So even if I go to a news site and I I read news, I probe myself, am I still getting value from this? 
Yes, yes, and yes. chances are, I you know, I might read two paragraphs, and then the answer is okay. I've understood what the the news is. I don't need to continue reading. Or is so, it impacting yeah. me negatively? Even you know, I mean, it, is it diminishing my? Is it creating negative emotions? You know, I mean, yes. all these things. You know, that that's such a great point because you know, especially these days, there's so much in the news oh that's. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very upsetting. And so I actually pick and choose what I pay attention to because it's going to carry over into other things that I do. And I, I would also urge listeners to think very carefully. That's also a part of meta-awareness, to be aware right. of how some information is going to affect you emotionally. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for surgeons, uh, you could envision it like this. Meta-awareness, you can, if you're conducting a, let's say a cardiac operation and you can, your focus is so like on the coronary anastomosis, and of course it has to be, but if you expand your awareness to the route, the surrounding area, meta-awareness, what's going on with the pulse, the heat, and the flow, uh, you know, the, the energy in the room, you know, to keep an eye on all these things and your own internal emotions, you know, that allows you to have the full conduct of everything in addition to the focus there and decision-making. And I, I really yeah. feel like this applies completely uh, to this world of distractions, both internal and external. Because if you're, if you're paying attention <laughs> to your attention, I guess, right? Uh, that's yes. what it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, then then you've got, as you said, as you say in the book, agency. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really crucial because now you're no longer like a fish on a hook to your internal interruptions or the external environment. You have choice. That's right. But if you're not aware of the choice, you don't have a choice. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. And and I, I do believe that uh, humans can get agency to be able to control their attention. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're not simply at the mercy of algorithms from tech companies, but, but yeah. people do have a choice yeah. and can control their attention. And the reason I love the way you frame that is because it it, it switches it from being at war with the world in a way to uh, ad- adapting to the world in a, in a more positive and a constructive way, you know, instead of berating yourself, Oh, you know, I, I went down there again, you know, and I, I'm, I keep doing this, you know, and the, the struggle that is can be so demoralizing, even simple things like YouTube, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the draw, I mean, YouTube had a huge draw to me, you know, and, and especially, you know, news and things. And and I, I learned how to block specific sites so they wouldn't show up in my feed, you know, because I had to stop it. But uh, it's very powerful, a very different frame and a way of approaching it. it. It is. And one of the things I learned through probing myself, probing means I, I just keep remembering to ask myself right. questions right. about the state of my attention. And I've learned that so many of the things I had been doing are, they're just boring. They're, boring. they're not giving me value. So yeah. I don't spend a lot of time on social media. I, I used to spend more time on Facebook, but now I realize it's just not giving me value. Right. I, I'm not learning anything new. Uh, when I read news again, you know, is this really providing uh-huh. additional value for me? You know, yes, I'd like to know what's going on. But um, so it, it this kind, you know, practicing meta-awareness enables you to be more intentional uh-huh. in your behavior. So once uh-huh. you realize, once you become aware that, you know, being on social media is is boring, then you can take action and you can change. It's uh-huh. It's about making all these unconscious actions more conscious Conscious, for us. And, you know, for, again, you know, going back to the phone example, um, when I become aware and I might say, do I really need to pick up my phone? Do I really need to check it? I can be more intentional and say, I don't need to, or you can form a plan. If you have this desire to check the news, 
you can say, okay, I'm just going to work 20 more minutes and then I'll, I'll go and switch. Then you get the treat. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, that, that brings me back to the goals and I want to highlight that again. <laughs> and you mentioned, you know, goals for the day, goals for the week, but also tying it to our emotional goals. And I really found that to be uh, in my own life, very powerful. And, you know, I used to think, you know, there's, I, there's this kind of two approaches. Okay. I've got all these tasks. I'll just write them all out and I got to get all this stuff done by the end of the day. Right. And some of those tasks, they don't need to be done. Uh, they're distracting, you know, uh, but what are my real goals in terms of my trajectory of my, my life in a sense. Mm -hmm. Right. And if, if writing a paper is one of them, well then if I write down, literally I write down that I, my two things that I want to accomplish by the end of the day that I know make me feel good. And here we get the emotions. Mm. I, I literally, I think about that and I write my two things down for the day, every day. And it really works. And I, and I, I have it written there and I can't avoid seeing it. And if I'm going off on a tangent or something, you know, I, I'm aware of it. And it, it's very powerful to know how you want to feel at the end of the day, because it's yeah. a motivator for me to avoid those other things. Yeah. Know? We, we do tend to neglect our emotional goals. And mm -hmm. I, I just think it's something that's embedded in our Western culture mm -hmm. that, you know, there there's this push to be as productive as possible. And as a result, our, our well-being is neglected. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, there there is a long history for why we have this push to be productive. Um if you recall B.F. Skinner, the behaviorist yeah, psychologist, yeah. he he set his alarm to wake four times during the night because he felt that, you know, he had to be as productive as possible. The um the first management consultant, Frederick Taylor. Uh, well familiar with him. Yes. Yep, Taylorism. <laughs> he developed ways to try to push people to optimize their productivity. And, th and this idea has just continued throughout our culture. And so now we're given tools, we're given devices, computers, smartphones that enable us to be productive. So it taps into this cultural ethos. push, yeah. this ethos yeah. to be as productive as possible. Um, and as a result, well-being is just kind of being pushed aside. Yeah. So, you know, back to your original uh, question about emotional goals, it's very important to be aware of our emotions and our well-being. And, you know, we, we are holistic beings. We're, yes. we're not just, yes. Yes. you know, productive machines, but we, we are human beings and we need to be aware of well-being. Yeah. And I want to return to that in just a minute, but it, it, this also brings me back to the walks and the, the the walks in Germany and being outside, because I I know myself, I, I I work from home now, and I have a little French bulldog, and I I I feel this pressure to keep going constantly, you know, with the work, you know, uh, and don't you know I can I really spare. 20 minutes to go out for a walk. I mean, this is the, the constant internal pressure that I, I, I have to kind of battle all the time. And I just finally, I just go out for the walk. And it's remarkable because I can use that time to kind of ponder, not think, but ponder mm. even what I was working on, you know, and it's remarkable. It's magic. What happens in terms of insights and ideas and stuff It's really, it is really incredible what you can glean from those walks where you disassociate from that. So I, I just want to really emphasize the power of that. And just yeah. trying to get over that pressure that we all feel so much in this ethos of productivity that dominates our world. Yeah. Our, our minds are still working, even if we're taking a walk or right. exercising ideas are incubating mm -hmm. right in the background of our minds. And so um, that's why sometimes you might be stuck on a problem. You go away from 
for a while mm-hmm. and then you come back and then suddenly the answer is so clear. So clear. Right. Yeah. It's it's because there there is some activity that's still going on in the background. Yeah. That's I, I, um, it's come to be fun for me. I enjoy the process now, you know, to go out and ponder. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. Well, the other piece that you just alluded to is well-being. And you in the book, you know, you've studied stress through HRV, heart rate variability. Uh, can you tell us about the impact of our new world on stress levels? What your thoughts are around how this contributes to burnout? To what extent do you think this new ethos or, you know, water that we're swimming in is contributing to burnout? And I know there's many causes, but I, I feel like yeah. this is one of the big ones. And then to wrap up how you, how you, and I think it's beautiful how you reframe how we should be using technology to promote our well-being and, and navigate that. So if you could mm-hmm. just kind of touch on those things, that'd be great. Sure. So um, we know that stress is on the rise. So there's a um, regular survey conducted by the American Psychological Association called Stress in America that shows that stress keeps increasing. And you're right, there there are multiple causes of stress that, you know, people have financial pressures. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, family issues during the pandemic that, that was a big source of stress. But we also can't rule out technology also as a source of stress. Um, you know, the scope of work has expanded with technology. So just to give one example, email has created this whole, this much larger scope of work. It's not just the tasks we need to do, but we might be inundated with requests from other people for information. Tasks might be delegated through email. So we have a much larger scope of work, which adds to stress. And of course, um, we've also done research and shown how electronic communications, particularly email, particularly email, has increased stress. It actually causes stress. It's not just a correlation, but we also can identify causality in stress. So so yes, using our devices and the the pressure that's associated with using the devices, the pressure to respond to electronic communications, um, the expectation that because we have these tools, we we can be more productive. The idea, and this is this is also a big contributor to stress, is that work hours have expanded through the evening because we now can yeah. do work anytime, yeah. anywhere. And it's no longer the case that, you know, it's 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. You've left work and, you know, the work is left at your office, we continued to do work throughout the evening, my, myself in, included. Mm-hmm. Um, we we know that when people have a chance to psychologically detach from work for a period of time until they start work the next day, we know that it helps people de-stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's also a reason why people are are so stressed. So it's you know, again, it's not so much directly related to the tools, but it's the fact that the tools enable us to continue working for longer Mm -hmm. amounts of time. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, I'll, I'll point out that some countries even have right to disconnect laws where people are not penalized for not answering electronic communications after work hours. And I, I think this is a very positive thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the traditional way that people think about doing their tasks is you write out a to-do list and you have, you know, nine o'clock, here's the task I'm going to do, 10 o'clock, this task, 11 o'clock, this task. Um, but people actually have... We, we have this ebb and flow of cognitive resources that we talked about. And people have rhythms of their uh, oh, yes, attentional yeah. capacity. 
And so, you know, sometimes you're at a peak, sometimes you're in a valley. And it's not hard to learn what your personal attentional rhythm is. There are individual differences like there there is in almost any kind of psychological phenomenon. Uh, so, you know, people have different chronotypes. You might be an early type, a late type. Mm -hmm. uh, depends on the task you're doing. Depends how much good quality sleep you got the night before. But consider, in general, when your attentional peaks are. And plan to do that work that's the hardest, that requires the most creativity during those times when people are at their attentional peak. And, and you'll perform much better and be aware that you won't be at an attentional peak for an extended period over the day. There's times when your attention will wane. And so plan to do other things that can help you replenish your attention. I, I could never understand how surgeons schedule operations at seven o'clock in the morning. I, I am not an early type. And of course, there's many, there are many physicians who are also not early types. And I, I could never imagine how someone who's not an early type could be so um, alert at yeah. 7 a.m. Yeah. I'm working with a surgeon right now and coaching him and he's, he's exactly that way. And it's just so difficult for him in the morning, you know, and he really hits a stride later in the morning, but yeah. you know, the world is run in a different fashion in this regard. And, but so let's just to go to that surgeon. So, you know, the, the OR starts at seven 30, uh, you've got cases booked, uh, all day, maybe, you know, until three, four o'clock. Uh, what does one do there where you your you know your circadian rhythms, which you talk about in the book and are so important to uh, be aware of, how does one manage this in, in a circumstance like that? I I do not have a good answer to that. I think the medical system needs to pay better attention to individual types and maybe, you know, if it's possible to help people design, personal schedules mm -hmm. and i yeah. i don't even that's probably a radical a, change yeah, yeah. In the system but but um yeah uh i i would say one thing that could be done is just to make sure that people have sufficient breaks between surgeries so yeah. and i know sometimes surgery doesn't go the way you expect it to and it can last a lot longer and then people mm -hmm. really have their limited cognitive resources are really getting expended and yeah 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 i used to uh i mean i would actually i, I remember this so well i mean I'd, I'd go outside sometimes between cases and walk around the hospital uh outside to get a break and get some fresh air and get my mind to have a little rest i'd try and uh walk up and down stairs to get a little relieve a little stress you know Mm -hmm. And to get my mind oriented, any of these little moves that you could do in between to, you know, uh, to clear the mind. But I know what happens these days, you know, people, people walk out of the operating room, they go to their phone, they're checking email, uh, they go to the computer for a little bit, they got to do EMR and all that stuff. So it's, it's really, it's really a challenging, challenging environment for my colleagues. And I don't have any good solutions for that, but I, I, I do know that the principles in your book and that you've taught us uh, can have such a dramatic impact, even if you can put them in small ways into a complex day like this, it really can make the difference. And, you know, yeah. and, and meta awareness, even as you plan your week as a surgeon, you know, thinking about how you want to end up emotionally and, and cognitively at the end of the week. I mean, it is possible, but uh, it's hard. There's no question. It's difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So have you ever studied physicians specifically and their use of electronic communications and devices? Yes. So we did do a study. Um, now, it it turns out that, you know, I mean, physicians already have a, a packed day, but having to deal with messages in the inbox from patients, from, uh, you know, dealing with test results from many different sources 
it simply adds to the scope of their work. And it is worrisome. We do find that there is this correlation be between handling more inbox messages and stress that mm -hmm. physicians mm -hmm. experience. Uh, and many physicians have to deal with the inbox after work hours. So yes. it also is expanding the day. So there, there are uh, repercussions to physicians from, you know, from the inbox. Of course, it's it's a benefit to patients, um, but I think there's there's better solutions. For example, a lot of these messages might be able to be um, answered by, say, a team. Mm -hmm. you, you can put together a team that can deal with uh, quite a few of these messages, relieving the load on physicians. Yeah, great. Well, Gloria, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real pleasure and an honor uh, to talk to you about this. And and again, and I just I, I can't emphasize enough to the audience what an important work this book is. Uh, and it's really a paradigm shifter uh, for all of us in terms of our thinking about this to pull us out of the sea uh, that we live in, sea of distraction, not only in external, but internal and to help us develop some agency and, and manage us better for our physical and mental health. Uh, so a, a huge thank you and, and gratitude for all that you've done. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. And yeah. I, I want to thank you and, and the listeners who are surgeons for all the important work they're doing. Yeah, thank you. And if people want to reach out or find out more about your work, uh, where are you on social media and how can they dig in a little bit more? Yeah. So first of all, you, you can go to my website, www.gloriamark.com. And I have a Substack column, which you can subscribe to where every week I touch on a particular aspect of this. So you can you know, subscribe uh, to that. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn and on Twitter, which is now X. called X. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, great. Well, again, Gloria, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.